you can teach a student, you know, the, the, the path that they should walk. And then there is the other element of the student loving the path yes. that they should walk. Um, and I think that's, that's the development of good taste, is actually learning to, to, learning to love what is good, true, and beautiful. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. Sitting with my friends Ian and Paul and a very special guest, Kyle. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about his new book, A Classical History of Art. But before we get there, I want to ask you guys a question I often ask. Ian, what have you been reading recently? A couple things, or several things, I should say. So I finished Jane Eyre, and that had been okay. on my list for a little bit, and loved it. Now, early on, you told me, you walked it, you said, I'm not sure I like Jane Eyre. Yeah. I, and I said to you, Ian, finish the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I listened to you. I obeyed you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really did. I, I truly found it a beautiful book by the end. Um, and so at first I was a little, it, it was a little overwritten at first. You know, I, I'm used to reading some of these, you know, buildings, Romans, you know, that these, these life stories, but she's, you know, talking about her childhood and using vocabulary while outside of her childhood, you know, it just seemed like I was reading something that was a little bit much, but really enjoyed some of the imagery, some of the symbolism there by the end. It was a, you know, an interesting read, very, very much an interesting read. Now, now Kyle, you're a noted enemy of the book, (laughs) Jane Eyre. I wondered if we would go here. What did you think of the end of Jane Eyre? Yeah, I would, I would not use the word enemy. Uh, It's a fine book. It's it's not it's not you know uh, comparable to other books that may have been written by you know the author's sister, for instance. <laughs> um, th- there's so much I like I do like about Jane Eyre, but it's primarily an ending that that gets me. It just it feels a little mm. forced, as though the author has killed off a character to allow. I find this borderline offensive. Happen. Yeah, because <laughs> I feel like the ending of Jane Eyre that. is yeah. honestly perfect. Mm. Okay, well, what the novel does in building who Jane is, is really all for this higher goal of really teaching you the about love. I mean, all great stories in some ways give you a sense of what love is and can do. Yeah. And that novel is, is fairly long and all of it's in service of showing us what kind of person Jane is so that when the love that she has does what it does, it has mm-hmm. a very deep resonance for you. And that is entirely impossible without this ending. <laughs> I understand. I'll I'll see your Jane Eyre and I'll raise you a Wuthering Heights, <laughs> which is also about love and about about the the power of self sacrificial love over time, and that the it, fundamentally the meek shall inherit the earth is I think what what Wuthering Heights says what what it shows you this is how the meek inherit the earth rather than giving the meek the payoff right now so that you don't have to go on being meek for too long. I feel. I mean, perhaps Jane Eyre should have just been a, a six hundred page, eight hundred page book, and then it would have all played out exactly as it should have. Oh. <laughs> all right. Ian, <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah, I cut you off. What, what else are you? What else are you? Uh, well, I just finished Persuasion, which was oh, wow, that a lot was of fun. fast. Yeah, well, it is fast. We're doing it for book club. That's why. That's why Paul knows. And then uh, working through Cry the Beloved Country and oh. uh, taking that one slowly because that one's a. That one's a deep one, a heavy one. So, Kyle, what have you been reading recently? Yeah. Martin Cawthorn suggested that I read um, The Greek Way by Edith mm. Hamilton, which I'd never read. Um, so I finished that. I read it over over our spring break, so a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that inspired me to get into uh, 
a study, further study of um, the Greek tragedies, oh. which I, I really have read it like my experience. There's spotty here and there. Sure. I've read a few, but I'd really like to get more under my belt. So I just started with Oedipus. Okay. I'm in the middle of that right now. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I'm, I've just sort of made a beginning at for now. And we'll see how far that takes me. But yeah. Paul, what about you? Um, I recently read in about three days, the gates of doom by Raphael Sabatini Oh, made me feel really good about myself because I cranked through a big book really quickly, but it, I mean, not a whole lot of redeeming value. It's just a really? great yeah. adventure story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Gates of doom. What, what was it about? I mean, uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's set. The main character's a spy trying to reestablish, I don't even know which English king to the throne who's in exile. It's it's very similar to like the Scarlet Pimpernel. In the Scarlet Pimpernel, we've got this, his wife who doesn't know who he is. Mm-hmm. There's there's this young lady that he ends up courting. He thinks she's somebody else, and they end up kind of falling in love. And but then the the double agent who's going to turn the main character over is engaged to the young woman that he falls in love with. So it's, it's just a oh. mess of swashbuckling tale. Swash, yeah. mess I, of swashbuckling. Yes. I've, I've been meaning to get back into some of those. I remember reading, um, Captain Blood when I was in man, junior high or early mm-hmm. high school, just because the title is Captain Blood. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, that sounds cool. Obviously. <laughs> um, and I, it, it sticks in my mind as just one of the best adventures. They're, they're phenomenal. Rip Roar and good fun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and actually Captain Blood is one of the two I ended up finding at the used bookstore. Okay. Yeah. So um, that's probably my next one to dive yeah. into. So last week I got completely knocked off my feet by the stomach flu. Mm. It's pretty, pretty bad. Um, but I had a little time to read while I was lying in bed. And when I'm like ill and don't want to do anything and feel terrible, I pick up comfort books, which is books that I've read before, but, you know, really like and want to go back to. So for me, it was this uh, biography of Lewis called The Narnian, which I had read once, but early, early on, like, I think I was like 17 or 18 when I read it. I didn't fully have even the grasp of Lewis that I have now or like the concepts. And it's actually a biography of his imagination. And it was really good. It's a really good uh, biography of Lewis. And one of the themes of it is that Lewis would always say he loved the, uh, a mild illness because it would give him more time to read. (laughs) And so that, you know, it was amusing because I was, but I was, it wasn't a mild illness, but um, we've talked about what we've read, but what we haven't talked about is another book that we all have been reading over the last couple of months, ever since its publication. Um, And that is a classical history of art. Kyle, I think a lot of people are excited to see this and work through it. And my question for you is what, where did this come from? What brought it about? What did yeah. You you have a what a master's in literature, I do. Yeah, um, you were a high school literature teacher for a long time. Mm-hmm. Where did your interest in the visual arts come from, and what is this work yeah. a product of? I originally went to college to be an art major. Um, I was always interested in art, drawing, um, all of that. I switched midway through college because I I felt I didn't really think in terms of visual. I didn't think in terms of images. I thought in terms of of stories, I think. And that, so I, I switched to, to my interest in um, uh, my focus in literature, but I, I kept on studying art. Uh, I took a drawing class, a figure drawing class every single semester, all the way through all four years of college. So I have a lot of experience um, on, on that side of the... As a practitioner? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I took a couple of art history classes in college as well. Uh, so 
there's a general interest in in the arts. Um, my interest in literature, I think, also has a lot to do with, uh, I, I guess, call it aesthetics or taste, taste and aesthetics, and developing good taste, which I, I do think is a is a criteria a thing that can be done. There is such a thing as good taste as opposed to bad, um, and that was one of the motivations for for writing this. But I think that the primary one is, um, you know. It, it, like teaching at a classical school, uh, working for a classical school, um, art, visual art, primarily sculpture and architecture are very important painting to are very important to the classical world. The Greeks are passionate about, about beauty and about the, the you know, expression of beauty through art. And so I kind of felt that this should be a thing that we are learning ourselves as teachers. And this is, the, should be a thing that we're passing on just, just our, our in appreciation for that to students uh, this should be a thing that we're teaching. And then in studying a lot of art curriculums that are out there, I ran into my, my primary, primary frustration, other than a lot of art, um, like art history books are huge. They're e enormous volumes that are, they're very, very intimidating. And you almost have to have a curriculum to guide you through, you know, one of these volumes. Uh, so that, that was one frustration. And then, but the main one is if you read the introductions of, um, I, I, I don't know if I want to say a majority, maybe I do want to say a majority of art histories out there. It seems to be that, that, that the primary focus of these art histories of the introductions is to instruct students and teach students not to judge art, like how to not judge, how to, how to not bring your judgments to the art in front of you. And I thought we should be doing exactly the opposite of that. We should be stu teaching students exactly how to judge art and judge it accurately and to appreciate what is great um, and to um, understand. And I, I almost use the word scorn. I think that's a, that's a strong <laughs> word. Um, I might support you in that word, but well, I, I do think it should be studied. Modern art should be, should be, uh, you know, where we are now, contemporary art should be studied because it should be understood. It should be understood, but, but, but scorned in the sense of, of, yeah, we, we do not have a taste for it that, that we, we, uh, like respond to it according to, to, I think what it deserves. Yeah. I want to come back around to, to this question because I think it's really important for seeing the value of your program. But I think mm -hmm. before that I would make the comment, you, you talked about seeing the value of the visual art and architecture in classical education. Generally, I yeah. think it's no accident that um, if you go on Memorial Press's website and find this article that Mrs. Lowe wrote, well, a series of articles of uh, 10 articles of like, she was just trying to show the pervasive influence of the classical cultures in our modern day. And so she wrote a series of 10 articles about all the various ways that Greece and Rome show up in the modern day. Yeah. The very first one is about architecture, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting. And I think she yeah. also saw that connection talks about De Architectura and, and the influence that that's had. And I, you know, have never studied architecture or anything like that, but just a little bit from our article, you can start to see all the various ways that we're deeply indebted to the classical cultures. Oh yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can drive by a city bank and they'll have, and it's not, it's not structural, but it's like a little facade that they've, you know, nailed to the front of it that is, it has its roots in Greek architecture. Um, you know, it's, just, it's, it's a bank. It's inspired to, to make the bank look official and, and you know, trustworthy. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's not, it's not <clears throat> been that long since, you know, major corporations building buildings mm -hmm. in Chicago or any major city were intentionally building these buildings with the, the facades or, you know, the, the design that harken back to yeah. ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. Paul on, on uh, the 
topic of the this kind of program existing, you're you're a headmaster of a school. You're thinking about students and the course uh, sequence that they should be going through. What value do you see for our students coming to a classical history of art class in their high school education? What's the importance of this course? Well, look, I mean, if you if you train a student academically in the classical tradition, you've oriented them uh, largely towards objective truth. And if we do not consider or have as an emphasis orienting the students towards beauty, then we're, 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 we're sending them out, you know, with an appendage cut off, right? Because a lot of, I mean, Plato talks about, right? Music bypasses the intellect and goes straight to the soul, right? I mean, arts in general do that. And, and so, I mean, the majority, what is, what is culture? Culture is largely defined by the fine arts. And so if we haven't prepared our students in, in the domain of aesthetics, we really haven't prepared them at all. It's, it's, it's really important for those students to understand that. But I mean, it doesn't, now, I mean, having its own course is wonderful. It needs that for to, for for the school to be able to say, okay, this is an emphasis for us. But also in every class, what what should we, if we're talking about uh, the ancient Greeks, are we showing our students anything about what you know, in, in, about what they created, um, you know, in 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 sort of pictorial or sculpture settings? that relate to what we're studying, you know, if you're studying Dante, right? Are you looking at representations of the, the, the story? And so like that should be all throughout what they're studying where we should be forming the, 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 the appreciation, the, the, the aesthetic, uh, what's, what's the word I'm going for? The aesthetic uh, sensibility, or, sensibility or, or, yeah, or, yeah. of the child, but having its own course, and and having it driven towards sort of an 11th, 12th grader where, okay, now we're going to make explicit everything that you've been picking up that we've been intentionally uh, presenting to you through the years. Now at the end of high school, we're going to, we're going to sit there and kind of reason through it and understand why we've done this. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it, I mean, it's taste. I, th- I think that's how I'd use the word taste. Mm-hmm. Um, what you said that, 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 uh, uh, just the aesthetic appreciation and that, uh, yeah, I think that's really well put. That that comes down to, you can teach a student, you know, the, the the path that they should walk, and then there is the other element of the student loving the path yes. that they should walk. Um, and I think that's that's the development of good taste is actually learning to, to learning to love what is good, true, and beautiful. Welcome to a classical history of art. My name is Kyle Yonke, and I'll be walking you through this course. If we begin, as many do, with the idea that each opinion is equally valid, then we're never going to have any dialogue or conversation. Uh, We'll never have any hope of persuading one another what is good and what is bad. The beauty of a classical study of art is that it provides us with a reliable measure 
by which to test our tastes. But isn't taste subjective? Isn't it just preference? No. The study of beauty, or beauty in art, is an objective study. And that brings us right back to that word, classical. If this is going to be a classical history of art, that word implies a certain adherence to the aesthetic values, the aesthetic tastes of Greece and Rome, the tastes of the classical time period. Um, and it's important to understand in this that we are not necessarily forced to advocate the historical actions of either one of these cultures if we advocate for their art. Uh, Greek statuary has long been held the standard by which fine art is measured, and this is true uh, in the Renaissance, absolutely true in the Renaissance. It is true after the Renaissance, and one could even make a case that it is still true today in the sense that Greek sculpture is that by which modern artists measure their own work uh, in that they are responding to it, reacting to it, and in many cases going in the other direction from it. But it's still measured by that, that standard of classical Greek sculpture. So this course will focus on that uh, period in art history, and it will foster, I hope, an appreciation for the beauty of that period in art history, and by doing such, will develop good taste. Art portrays an ideal. It portrays what a culture loves. It portrays the thing that a culture exists for or strives for, but does not always achieve. Hypocrisy exists among men, that is certain. But if we're looking for virtue, it makes sense that we look at beauty. And if we are looking at beauty, it makes sense that we turn to art. The strength of classical art, and indeed the strength of all true beauty, is that it elevates humanity. It dreams of a humanity elevated beyond that, that base level of hypocrisy. And this has two very important implications that go along with it. One. Art does not find its significance in what it means to you. Let me say that again. Art does not find its meaning, its significance, its importance in what it means to you. So the concept that your feeling about the art is what matters, that concept feels like freedom, but it is actually dead. It kills any potential of discussion. It kills your ability to share what you love with someone else, to, to persuade someone else to love also the thing that you love. So if we're looking for a significance that runs deeper than our immediate impression of any work of art, we should look to classical art. Ian, I want to come around to you because you kind of worked on the side of helping to build this curriculum and you're thinking about how all these pieces fit together in your role as an editor. And I wanted to ask you, kind of experiencing this curriculum and kind of hearing how they talk about how it should function for students, how does that contrast with your education? I, you and I are similar. We had fine educations. Yeah. You know, they were okay, just not classical, unfortunately. What do you think would have been different for you if you'd gotten exposed to a curriculum like this earlier? Well, I think what Paul said, um, having that kind of prism that, that focuses my ability to, to appreciate what's around me. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that art is in every culture. 
architecture is in every culture and we have to do something with it. We've got to do something. We got to think about it a certain way. Now I grew up in a family where my dad's an artist, my sister's an artist. I've done some photography, but I can't draw, you know, anything. My wife teaches high school art. So I've been around art for, for a good amount of my life and had some instruction, but not, you know, sort of comprehensive or, or, or philosophical instruction. Now, one of my experiences where it kind of began to hit home for me, where I, where I began to realize I, I wish I knew more about this, was in, it was in seminary. Once I got to seminary and I started taking some, some classes with some, you know, some of our favorite professors, uh, Dr. Peter Gentry uh, recommended a book to me when I was asking some questions that uh, was written by a guy named Otmar Kell. I, th- I believe he was Egyptian. And he was not a theologian. In fact, I don't know if he was religious in any, in any way, but he studied all the ancient Near Eastern. He was an expert in ancient Near Eastern art. And what he did is he wrote a book about ancient Near Eastern iconography and its mm. relationship to, to different, especially Old Testament figures, images, things like that. And it became a treasure trove of information for me in any of my exegesis, in any, in any of my interpretation of particularly Old Testament texts, this became a resource that I went to again and again and again, because it taught me to see, okay, here we have literary texts in mm. the Old Testament that are giving you images that are related to Egyptian images, that are related to Hittite and other ancient Near Eastern civilizations. And I realized then that I've, I've got to know art even to be an understander of biblical texts. Yeah. yeah. I had a similar experience. I read the one by Dr. Brent Strom, which I think popularizes mm. um, yes. what, what you're talking about there. But Kyle, you mentioned this in the introduction to your program that art shows what a culture values. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And the people writing biblical literature valued certain things. And we found that the art that they made and it starts to shed images on the metaphors and the values of those people. And, that helps us to understand the Bible better, but it could mm-hmm. help us to understand ourselves better and um, the literature they're reading. So it makes sense to me, as Ian's saying, that there's a connection for you between kind of loving literature and mm-hmm. loving visual art. Certainly, yeah. yeah. So I want to pivot uh, a little bit and be the devil's advocate for a few minutes. Okay. You've called this a classical history of art. Yeah. And... I want to know, well, before I, before I attack you on that, tell, tell me why you chose that title. Why isn't this a history of art? Why is it a classical history of art? Well, so maybe I can disarm a little bit of your attack. Your, your the impending best, the attack. best defense is a good offense. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say by saying that actually the term is, is a, a bit intimidating to me. I, I did some, some thinking before, you know, do I really want to attach this term to what I'm doing and what would that really mean? Um, so Here's what I was thinking, that, that this is what's, what's uh, behind that choice. Um, like I said, I, 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 would, I want this curriculum to instruct a student in, in the good ways of, of how to, to judge a work of art. And in order to judge anything, you have to, you have to be, begin from some foundation. You have to begin from some premise, the, the truths that you hold to be true and therefore apply to the world. And that is your mere measurement for judging. And I think if, if we're a classical school, uh, then the art curriculum in a classical school should reflect classical values that we're, we're beginning at, you know, the curriculum is called a classical history of art because it's a history of art told from or, or seen from the values 
as best as I was able to, to encapsulate that of uh, Greece and Rome, and even I would even say primarily Greece. You, you maybe have spoken to it then, the, the critique, but I'll, I'll just level it and then mm. you can kind of re, reassert why this critique maybe doesn't land. That is, mm. my, my issue isn't that it maybe should be called a history of art, but maybe it should be called Kyle's history of art. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah. you take a very definitive point of view on the piece. You're saying some pieces are good and some pieces are not as good. What gives you yeah. the right to say this about these <laughs> these pieces of art? I would say I'm trying as best as I can uh, as I develop my own taste and develop my own appreciation of art. I'm trying as best as I can to align my values with those of the great art that I see. There is one thing that's working in, in my favor, I would say. The whole of, of art history, the whole of Western art history holds the Greeks to be the greats. And that, that's just factual. E- even a, even a, a contemporary modern artist who is uh, trying to do something wholly new is consciously doing something that's, that's often anti-Greek, right? So uh, this isn't contemporary, but, but um, uh, Degas, for instance, uh, uh, impressionist. Degas very consciously is, is doing, you know, he's, he's, he's drawing figures in a way that is un-Greek. Um, so e- even in disagreement, even if, if when the art world is trying to go in a different direction, the stronghold that they feel they need to, to take down is Greek art. So I do, I do have that going for me, that, that, that you know, the rest of the world agrees Greek art is, is the standard by which we are either agreeing with it and, and affirming it, or we are denying it and rejecting it and going in, in a different direction. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that this is, this is my lofty from on high opinion of, of, of art history. I, I'm, I'm trying to understand what the Greeks are doing, why it matters so much, and then, and then hold that standard uh, up against, you know, the, the, the Gothic era for instance, or the Renaissance or modern art, et cetera. But Kyle, you would say that if that, that the medievals and, and, and in the Renaissance, I mean, they're largely still, I mean, they're largely in the Greek school still, oh, yes. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so really where Kyle takes issue is probably what's in the 1700s ish is where things, yeah. where, where, where we talk about education now, I mean, we tend to point out at the end of the 1800s, but like, education takes a shift and we keep saying, no, 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 no. We want to hold to this prior tradition. So why would we not Mr. Devil's advocate um, <laughs> hold to the, the, the metrics or the, the, the lens through which the classics, the, 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 the classical era saw their art. The follow-up question then Kyle is that, you know, you're a, a master's in literature, not necessarily mm-hmm. a PhD in visual art or visual art history or something like that. Is there some vantage point that you stand on that gives this curriculum its weight or its uh, ability to help students? Perhaps the, I might claim the, the, the correct interest and the correct focus. Yeah. I, I do not have, uh, I would say like a level of expertise that gives me some authority of like, I can speak on this, but, but I will say though, too, any level of expertise is usually going to be um, very, very specific. And I, I'm, I was trying in this curriculum to write a very broad, very general introduction. Actually, I'll answer your question in a minute, but, but this, is, this is, I think, helpful to, to your question. An analogy that, that I've just sort of told myself, and as I was writing this too, that, you know, the way I wanted to think about what this curriculum is, if you move to like a new city, one of the first things you do to kind of orient your where you are in the city and how to get around is you learn the main highway systems, and then you start learning all of the 
the exits and the orders, you know, and, and, and so, you know, what, what location is between this exit and that exit? And so you start to orient yourself based on that, that main vein of traffic and the exits off of that. That's what I was trying to do with the curriculum is, is to give the highway and to give the exits and every single exit you could pull off there and spend, you know, a whole lifetime studying or becoming, you know, developing expertise or whatever. But I do think it's important, especially in high school, to have a sense of what the highway is and where the exits are. And then you can can go from there. So so that that being my intention, I actually think writing a curriculum, trying to see art history in that way, tr- trying to, to, you know, can can a non-expert or a, a common, you know, layman, whatever, understand these things and appreciate art to to the level that that I think that really the artists are are wanting their art to be appreciated. I, I don't think there are many artists, at least especially in the ancient world, or let me rephrase. I, I think it's I think it's a poor motivation to produce art to try to impress a specific expert of of one little, you know, pocket of art, which honestly I think that happens a lot in our contemporary world. I think more so, you know, the great art is made for people, for for common people to appreciate. And that appreciation elevates and educates, you know, it's, it's target audience. The Acropolis in Athens, I, I sort of, that, that to me is, is it's inspiring because it's a public work of art. It stands there it, it, over the city for every citizen to see. If you are a citizen of Athens, you are, you are, you know, this art is for you. Even their temple architecture with that, you can picture a Greek temple. You've got the, the roof, that, that triangular pediment shape, and then you've got um, just open columns. There aren't doors and there aren't walls on the outside of a Greek temple. There's just a row of columns. So you know that there is a there is such a thing as being inside a temple, right? Um, but it's easily accessible from from all sides. So using that as an example, Athenian art, classical art is public art. And I, I wanted to write a curriculum that that treated art that way, that that followed that that classical value of this is for this is for all people. Everyone should have some reasonable appreciation of the arts. And I wanted to write something that that made that accessible to your to your average person. Paul, it sounds like what Kyle is saying is that expert culture it is maybe a bad influence on curriculum writing in, in classical Christian schools. I'm and that, so glad you're throwing this my way <laughs> because I wanted to make a comment about that. Yeah, go, go on. Speak about expert culture. So, and, I mean, I wanted to come to Kyle's defense on this one, because when you threw him that question, I thought, well, it's kind of hard to put yourself up on a pedestal, right? I felt like I needed to step in here and say, if you look at the requirements of PhDs today, right, you only get that PhD if you do something new. And the whole whole point of what Kyle's trying to do here is just be a mouthpiece of the tradition, Mm. right? He doesn't need to do anything new. Right. He, what we need to do is appreciate what we've got mm. and in appreciating what we have, then that gives us a foundation for creating something new. Right. That's within that tradition. Right. Our students, hopefully, as they come out with this appreciation for aesthetics, for classical aesthetics. Right. We may see a a renewal of the kinds of architecture that we end up seeing and uh, or, you know, whether it's painting or, or sculpture, whatever it be. And 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 that influence our, our public places. Almost anybody you talk to that's within the classical world that has an advanced degree ends up saying, I kind of had to close my eyes and hold my nose and get through it 
Right. If they come into it with a classical mindset or afterwards they say, why didn't I get this in my program? Right. I, I missed an entire tradition, which is what our civilization is based on. So um, there, there, there are benefits to going through that. Right. There's, there's a lot of benefits, but when it comes to just sitting at the foot of the tradition, you don't have to have a degree to do that. Paul, would you like to write a forward to my art history? <laughs> <laughs> I would be honored in your second edition. Yeah, appreciate right. that. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, you said there might be some analogy to the way that Kyle is working into art that we are approaching literature in our literature curriculum Warrior Press. Well, I just think that with something like Kyle's work, and I, I, I've looked through the book and I've been able to be a part of it in some form or fashion. Um, what he's doing there is, is giving students something to hold on to. He's giving students, this is how to interpret art. Now, is it the final word? Perhaps not. And I don't think he's, I don't think he's arguing for that, but students have to start somewhere. They've got to start with, with the foundation to be able to understand and appreciate art to go on, as Paul said, and renew the tradition and maybe carry it forward because carrying it forward doesn't always imply doing exactly the same thing. You know, so I think what he's doing there is what we're also trying to do in our literature guides. Here's how you read well. Here's how you, here's how you pick up a book. You understand the story, but you also see the artistry and the beauty behind it. And so I think that's how we can appreciate this. This is something that gives them the basics, not just the basics, but even, even it's more advanced than just the basics. I want to be clear on that, but it, but it gives students the ability to take what they see and actually have an opinion that comes from some objective basis and not, not, and not just their own. I like it or I don't. Yeah. yeah and, and I, well, and I love your point that just because you're part of the tradition doesn't kind of get rid of your individuality. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you're, it's just helping you be part of that community. Yeah. Mm. I have that conversation with students all the time teaching this class. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great conversation to have. It's an important one to have. Um, but if this, I can this just, is students asking you like, what? Oh, if this is what's good and this is what's bad, well, then I just have to do that. And I can't be me, you know, exactly. You're yeah. racing creativity. Exactly. What happens to individuality? Um, which I mean, the beautiful thing is, is a lot of what the Greeks are doing has exactly to do with, with, um, a balance between unity and individuality. Mm. This is this is part of what I would say is you know a definition of, of great art. But I want to add to to Ian's point as well. Um, one of the things I was trying to do with this curriculum to to foster that is include. And th this is where my um, I, I do feel the benefit of having all those drawing classes that I took in college and and keeping up with that practice. I wanted to include as part of this appreciation element of, of the curriculum actual instruction in. in what artists are thinking about when they're composing a piece, you know, what's, what's on the artist's mind. So, so, I mean, they're not thinking about what's the date right now and what is my name. And, and, you know, right. so it's not just names and dates. It's they're thinking about, you know, what lines am I using? How many, how many, you know, straight vertical lines do I have in this piece? And how many does the piece justify versus, you know, curving lines that express sort of a different, have a different mm -hmm. quality to them. So just that, that element of appreciation, how to, how to read a painting or a sculpture or a building, how, how to look at it and understand what an artist is conveying visually with lines and contrast and, and shape, et cetera, was, I think, a really important part of this curriculum that I, that I wanted to get get in there. So let's, let's talk about that for just a few minutes. Yeah. Taste. Yeah. Define the word taste. You talk about it in the intro <laughs> to your program. And explain to me whether it's possible that you are just completely wrong <laughs> that classical Greek yeah. art 
is actually just not good because I don't like it. Mm. And that you saying it's great doesn't matter because my tastes are different than your tastes. I, I yeah. prefer impressionist art. Oh boy. Yeah. I prefer the modern stuff. Uh huh. But you like Greek art and your okay. tastes are wrong. Uh, yeah. No, this, so Dante, uh, Paul, you, you mentioned Dante earlier. Um, I, you know, I will say this, maybe more, maybe I should give, maybe I should have given Dante credit in my curriculum because, because maybe more than half of what I think about what you're asking comes from the divine comedy. Mm. First of all, I want to respectfully decline to define the word taste. You know, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've read so many art curriculums that try to, they begin with, you know, art is, is a word that really can't be defined. And then they go on the next paragraph to, try to <laughs> yeah, define right. it, to give some poor definition. Yeah. yeah so I, I don't know about a, a definition, but let me say this. So in Purgatorio, the, the second book of the divine comedy, you've got, there's a contrast between two women. Dante has, he's on his way to meet Beatrice to be face to face with his beloved, who's been his beloved through the whole text. And um, in Canto 19, he has a dream of a figure called Sirena or the Siren, who is sort of the counterpart to Beatrice, the opposite of Beatrice. In Dante's dream of the Siren, she takes the shape as love would have her for its delight. So she begins as an ugly old crone, you know, sort of hobbling toward Dante on, on you know, on a clubbed foot, it says. Um, and then as Dante looks at her, 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 her lines are, you know, smoothed um, and her, her figure is, is perfected and she becomes pleasing to Dante's eye, which I think Dante's writing about a parallel of, of you know, this is, this is Eve. She saw the fruit of the forbidden tree as, as a delight to the eye. It's pleasing to her eye, right? When Dante finally gets before Beatrice in Canto 30, the first thing Beatrice does basically, well, I won't, I won't give that away. No, no spoilers, but, but, so, but the first yeah, thing people Beatrice have had does. A years. <laughs> well, I, I know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's just one element it, uh, with Virgil that that we. It's not necessary for the point, but 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 the point is, is the first thing Beatrice does is she makes Dante cry, because Dante has not been faithful to his love of her. Dante has pursued other beauties, and she she rakes him over the coals for two contos. You know, she goes at him in Canto thirty, and then Canto thirty one. It's like someone brings up the topic again, and she lets fly a, you know <laughs> another speech again. So Dante's reduced to tears and repentance by beauty, and there's a contrast there between false beauty and true beauty. False beauty says what you want to see, what you want to find. I will be that to satisfy what you're looking for. True beauty says it's you. You know, the problem is you. They, like your tastes need to change. Your values need to change to match what true beauty is. So all of that to say, my response to your question would be another question. From, from a classical perspective, should our pleasure be the thing that, that shapes our definition of beauty and what is good? Or should beauty, with capital B, be the thing that gives shape to what we find pleasurable. And I think, th I think from a classical perspective, there's only one, one answer to that. Paul, break that down in, in, in your words. I was hoping Kyle we were just going to let that sit. That was beautiful, <laughs> Kyle. I, 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 fundamentally, the question is, is, is the individual the final arbiter of what is beautiful or is it something outside of us? Right. And you know, we have been working on this classical philosophy program for a couple of years. We're making progress on it. But if you think about the, the idea of a form or Plato's ideals, right? Plato's forms 
And what Plato offers to us, again, this is coming Greek ideals right here, saying there is something outside of us, right, that is that we participate in, right? And as Christians, we would say that is God, mm-hmm. right? And so therefore it is not, it's it's not coming from us, but we conform to it. And I mean, that that fundamentally changes what you're going to do in education. The other thing that happens, too, if you don't do that, if you don't conform to it, if, if as you said, the individual is the arbiter of, of beauty. Then you have barbarians everywhere. Yes. And, and beauty loses its significance. Beauty ceases to be a thing that's special because every individual has it. And it's no longer communal. Right. Right. We, we, yeah. we, we lose community. Yeah. We, we lose the 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 unity of of the human society because we don't all value the same thing. It's well said. It's well said. So Kyle, let's end on this. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend uh, to a school or a homeschooler or, you know, anyone who's kind of on the fence about whether they should incorporate this into the curriculum yeah. and any of you three can kind of jump in on this. Why should they go out, <laughs> sell their shirt, buy this curriculum today? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's um, not that expensive. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Um, I don't know. What's a good shirt go for these days? Uh, no, so so I, I I feel like there's a lot of things I could say. It, it's it's one it's 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 an adventure. It's fun. It, I th- I feel like I I'm convinced. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm convinced that more than other things, uh, beauty and and art, you know, sculpture, architecture, these are things that people feel that they should know something about, and and also feel that they don't feel like it's somehow beyond their access. It's it's beyond them. It's it's above them. Which is unfortunate. I don't think it. I don't think people should feel that way. I don't think they should feel it is above them. Like I said before, it, art should be public. It is. It is for the public. It's for citizens. So, so that would be one response. Uh, it's just. It's an adventure. It's a. It's a thing you've always wanted to know about, right? But then the other thing I would say too is I, I think we spend a, a a whole lot of time. I think we're very good in classical circles with responding to to goodness and truth. We have a, a lot to say, which is which is great, and we need to keep on saying that. But sometimes I think we don't know what to do with with beauty, and if anything, you know, th- those are those three transcendentals. They they are they're a trinity, right? That they are equal parts. All three of them are important, um, and we cannot let one of them uh, sort of fall to the side because we don't really know what what to do with it. Maybe I should leave it at that. But but I also have to say one more thing. Sure. <laughs> I also think this is an issue that we're, we're kind of behind enemy lines. On this this issue, on the issue of of beauty, I think there's there's been a battle fought and won uh, in in favor of this. The individual is is mm-hmm. is the sole arbiter, and I think that's an important fight to be in. Mm. Ian, Paul, any any other recommendations? When you were talking about the individual being the arbiter, your first part to that response, yeah, I just keep coming back to in in my mind what you said about the. People feel that they need to know something about it and they don't. Mm -hmm. And I just have not seen a response to a new program that Memorial Press put out, like put out, like I've seen with classical art. I don't, I, I did not foresee a lot of people going, Ooh, this is important, but there is that need that people, because the amount of people have come up and asked me about it. People are realizing that it is, a significant part of what they need to use, to educate their children in. I think if I can end with a story, 
I went to a museum of art around here and uh, this is several years ago now. I have no idea who the artist was, but I walked into the modern art exhibition there. And at the back of the modern art exhibition was uh, a piece of rug on the wall. And the description was, you know, this rug was pulled out of a house that had lots of people walking over the rug and it's art because it's a piece of rug from a house. And I was just so mad at it, just so <laughs> mad at, at seeing this rug on the wall. And, you know, a book like this, a book like this gives you language and vocabulary for why that's wrong, for why you can be mad about that kind of thing. Yeah, that's great. Kyle, thanks for coming on. Let's do this again sometime. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.